1: When they arrived at the Jordan, they began cutting down trees. But as one of them was cutting a tree, his axe head fell into the river. "'Oh, sir,' he cried, "'it was a borrowed axe!' "'Where did it fall?' the man of God asked. When he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and threw it into the water at that spot. Then the axe head floated to the surface. "'Grab it,' Elisha said. And the man reached out and grabbed it.
0: 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 4-7 through seven, New Living Translation
1: Then the Lord said to Moses, "'Why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. Pick up your staff and raise your hand over the sea.' Divide the water so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground, with walls of water on each side.
0: Exodus Chapter 14, verses 15 and 16, and verses 21 and 22. New Living Translation Hello, I'm Victoria K. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books, and part-time aeronautical engineer. That means sometimes when he's in one of his thinking spells, The floor of his office is covered with paper airplanes that never make it to the recycling container. We've suggested he just move the container closer to his desk, but he says that would reduce the analytical challenge of producing better designs. Anyway, today on Anchored by Truth, We're going to continue our analysis of miracles in the Bible by examining the types of miracles that are described in Bible stories and what we can learn from the fact that there are different types of miracles that God uses as part of His plan of redemption. R.D., would you like to put some wind into our discussion by reminding us of some of what we've learned so far?
2: Put some wind into our discussion? Really?
0: Wind sounded better than hot air
2: well i agree with that anyway thus far in our discussion of miracles in the bible in the episodes of anchored by truth that we've discussed miracles so far we've covered a few key points about how miracles are used within the bible one key point is that even though the immediate effects of miracles may vary widely miracles are never random events they always have a specific purpose in the Bible. And the basic purpose for miraculous events that are described in the Bible, the basic purpose for having those is that those miracles, which in the Bible are more often called signs and wonders, are used to validate authentic messengers of God, messengers such as Moses or Elijah or in the New Testament period, the Apostle Paul. Second key point that we've covered in our discussion so far is that miracles in the Bible tend to be clustered during specific time periods that seem to have specific importance to redemptive history. For instance, the miracles during the time of Moses marked the time when God was moving His people out of Egypt, back to the Promised Land, back to the land of Canaan, and Moses appeared as their leader, and God authenticated that Moses was going to be the leader of the people by allowing Moses to perform a number of very notable miracles. And similarly, miracles during the time of the Apostle Paul happened during the time when God was establishing his new church. And this was a church that included not only the Jews, but also included Gentiles. So God was creating a new event within redemptive history that immediately followed Jesus' death and resurrection. So the miracles that were being performed by the Apostle Paul validated the fact that God had sent Paul into the world to spread the gospel throughout what we would have called at the time the whole Roman world.
0: But during the Apostle Paul's time, there were also other Christians in the early church who were also performing miracles, weren't there?
2: Yes absolutely correct that during the period of the early church the apostle paul was not the only believer who had been given the ability to perform miracles when paul was still being called saul which was his name before god changed it a believer named ananias healed saul's blindness that god had inflicted on saul during his journey from jerusalem to damascus and the book of acts also says that peter stephen and philip performed many miracles And then there were a number of miracles during that period of the early church that were not attributed to the agency of any particular person, such as when the Holy Spirit appeared on Pentecost and gave all the disciples the ability to speak foreign languages that they had never learned. In fact, it's probably fair to say that during Christ's life and in the period immediately following Christ's death and resurrection, more miracles were performed than during any other single period of redemptive history. Now, I've often thought that this was one way that God was emphasizing that one part of redemption, the Old Covenant, which is basically described in the Old Testament, that God was emphasizing that the Old Covenant was ending and a new covenant, the New Testament, was beginning. But it's really important to note that even though there were a lot of miracles being performed during the period of the early church, that this proliferation of miracles seems to have lasted for only a fairly short period of time, a, a reasonably short period of time, when you look at the entire duration of redemptive history. And so this proliferation of miracles, right after Christ died and was resurrected, seems to have lasted only long enough to validate that the apostles and some other early believers were, in fact, people who had an authentic message from God. And, of course, that message from God was the fact that Jesus had come as the Messiah to save people from their sins, and that anyone who trusted in Jesus for salvation alone would receive that salvation. So, this period during the early church seems to have been a period, obviously very important in redemptive history, But it was a period where those messengers, those early believers, were marked as having an authentic message from God, but it does not seem to be a period that continued much farther into what we call the New Testament period.
0: So in that sense, you're saying that all the clusters of miracles in the Bible not only mark specific people as messengers of God, but also mark specific turning points in redemptive history in the unfolding of God's grand plan of creation, fall,
2: and redemption. Absolutely. The proliferation of miracles in Moses' time marked the end of the Hebrew nation's sojourn in Egypt, which, of course, they had gone down there originally to escape the famine that was in Canaan at the time. Now, their sojourn in Egypt lasted probably longer than any of them expected. It lasted for a period of over 400 years. But during that period, the Hebrew nation grew from a group of about 80 people into a nation of over 2 million people. So that sojourn, that period in which the Hebrew nation was living in Egypt, marked a rapid period of development in the size of the nation. Now after the Hebrew nation had returned to the Promised Land, the proliferation of miracles during Elijah and Elisha's time marked the end of the unified Hebrew nation. Before the period of Elijah and Elisha, for several hundred years, the Hebrew nation had existed more or less as a unified group of twelve tribes. When the nation split under the rulership of Solomon's son, those twelve tribes would never live as a unified group ever again. So Elijah and Elisha were preaching in that period shortly after the split of the nation into the northern and southern kingdoms. Those miracles marked the time when the nation's unified period was ending, and frankly, unfortunately, the beginning of a period of a lengthy fall into idolatry. Now, the miracles right after the resurrection of Jesus marked the close of the period in which the Messiah, the Promised One, had been anticipated but had not yet come. So, those periods, when miracles proliferated, were periods that tended to mark the end of one period of redemptive history, But of course, they not only marked the end of a period, they also marked a beginning. The time of Moses and the miracles that he performed marked the beginning of the Hebrew nation's return and occupancy of the promised land. The miracles of Jesus' time and the apostles' lives marked the beginning of the New Covenant, which is described in the Bible in the New Testament. And so all of this... The fact that miracles in the Bible serve to identify authentic messengers of God, and the fact that there are clusters of miracles that occur during specific points in redemptive history, this is one of the reasons that it's so important to have a very clear understanding of what miracles are and what they are not. Because there's a lot of confusion about miracles, about whether they just happen to occur sporadically or episodically. So the miracles that are used in the Bible have very specific purposes, and I think that by studying the miracles carefully, we can get greater clarity into who God is and how God is choosing to unfold His redemptive process. Because remember, the Bible is all about God's grand plan. He created everything, and then Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God, and that caused the fall. But ultimately, as soon as the fall occurred, God began a grand plan of redemption in which He plans to redeem a people for Himself, and ultimately He's going to redeem all of creation from the effects of the fall.
0: So our starting point for today's discussion about different types of miracles is that even though there are different types of miracles described in the Bible— All of the miracles serve the same purpose, to further God's plan of ransoming a body of believers from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue to join Him in fellowship for all eternity. But before we go too much further, it's probably a good idea to remind everyone the only reason that God can unfold a plan that spans millennia is because He is eternal and infinite. God can accomplish any plan he wants. There is no power in the universe or in any part of the created order that can prevent God from doing anything he chooses. And you say the fact that God uses his power to intervene in his natural order from time to time illustrates the fact that God is in control of all events, whether from a human standpoint their effect is great or seemingly insignificant, right?
2: Exactly right. There are a lot of illusions and misconceptions about God that circulate in our culture today, even among Christians. Now, we certainly don't have time to tackle them all.
0: At least not in this show. We have more shows coming.
2: Well, we may not even get to all of them even then. But we can at least provide some clarity about what the Bible says about God. And, especially for today... We can see what kind of lessons about God's character and purposes we can glean from the Bible's various accounts of miracles. So for today, I'd like to focus on three episodes that we see in the Bible. Two of the episodes are ones of miracles, which again, the Bible most often calls signs and wonders. The third episode is sometimes thought to be miraculous, but it really isn't.
0: Okay, so what are the three Bible stories you want to consider?
2: Well, today I want to take a look at the encounter between David and Goliath, which is not an account of a miracle. I also want to take a look at the two episodes that we heard in our opening scriptures. The first miraculous episode is the account of the prophet Elisha using a miracle for something that seems to be insignificant to us, saving an axe head from being lost in a river. The second miraculous episode is the well-known incident when God parted the Red Sea to save the Hebrews from the Egyptian army.
0: Hmm, this sounds like it could be interesting. Well, let's start with David's defeat of Goliath. Most scholars believe that David was just a teenager when he fought Goliath. And even though David's height isn't expressly given to us, many scholars believe that he was relatively short, even in a society where the average adult Hebrew man was less than 5 foot 6 inches tall. The Bible does tell us that David was very handsome, but I'm not sure that would have mattered very much to a Philistine warrior over nine feet tall that wore a coat of mail that weighed 125 pounds and carried a spear whose spearhead alone was around 15 pounds. To many people, a small Hebrew teenager armed only with a piece of leather and a rock defeating a massive, armored, seasoned enemy warrior would seem to be miraculous.
2: The key word there is seem. True biblical miracles involve God interceding in the affairs of His creation in such a way that, for a limited time and for a specific purpose, God suspends the operation of what we would normally call natural law.
0: I noticed that you said suspend natural laws, not violate them.
2: Right, I did say suspend. Since God created everything, including how His creation behaves, God can do anything with this creation He chooses. Natural laws are really just descriptions of how matter and energy within creation normally behave. They are descriptive, not prescriptive. Since God created natural laws, they obey His commands. Now, the overwhelming majority of the time, natural laws govern matter and energy, but occasionally, just occasionally, God will suspend or change the operation of one or more of His natural laws. And the Bible calls those instances most often signs and wonders, but we tend to call them miracles.
0: So you're saying that when David killed Goliath using a rock and a sling, God did not suspend the operation of any of His natural laws. The laws of physics governing the whirling of the sling, the motion of the rock, and the impact of the rock when it hit Goliath all operated normally, just as they would have had the two combatants been entirely different people.
2: Yes. Now, I'm certainly not saying that David's defeat of Goliath wasn't providential and even remarkable. But God didn't need to change any natural laws for David to kill Goliath. When we did our Anchored by Truth series on the story of David and Goliath, we covered the medical and physical science that pointed out that a person who's skilled in the use of what's called the sling can generate enough of an impact by hurling a rock from that sling to kill a human being. Matter of fact, the History Channel tested a gentleman named Luis Pons Livermore, who is a Balearic sling champion. And what the History Channel did was erect a nine-foot-tall replica of Goliath, and they positioned a load cell on the forehead of that replica. Now, according to trauma surgeon Dr. Mike Edwards, the force necessary to kill a human being from blood force trauma is anything over 3,000 newtons or 3 kilonewtons. This force, when it's spread over the area of 30 square millimeters, causes a shock wave within the brain that essentially causes irreversible brain damage. So when the History Channel allowed Mr. Livermore to sling his stone at the replica of Goliath, not only did Mr. Livermore hit the load cell with impressive accuracy, but he hit the load cell with a force that measured 3.62 kilonewtons, and that was certainly more than enough force to kill Goliath. So all of that's occurring well within the realms of the ordinary operation of natural law. So God did not have to suspend the operation of any natural laws in order for David to kill Goliath using a sling.
0: So when David killed Goliath, all of God's natural laws operated exactly as they should. But contrast that with the episode where Elijah raised the axe head out of the river that we heard about in our first scripture today. In that case, God did suspend the operation of one or more natural laws Because solid iron objects aren't normally going to float when they fall in a river, are they?
2: No, they're not going to. For an axe head to rise off the bottom of a river by itself, without someone going into the river and fishing it out, just doesn't happen when the normal laws of physics are in operation. Now, just for clarity's sake, let's make sure we understand the entire story. We only heard a part of it in our opening scripture. The reason that the men were down near the river cutting down trees was because they wanted to enlarge the building where the people had been meeting with Elijah, sort of a meeting place between the prophet and the people. That was where Elisha counseled the people, probably resolved disputes, and most importantly, Elisha passed along God's messages to the people. And while to us losing an axe or an axe head isn't any fun, it's certainly an object that we can replace fairly easily. But this is 9th century B.C. Israel. Iron was a rare commodity in those days, so the loss of just a simple axe head would have been far more of a catastrophic event for them than it was for us. Also, they were cutting trees near the Jordan River, and the Jordan River can vary widely in its flow and intensity depending on what season of the year it is. So, this particular miracle, where the axe head came up off the bottom of the river, may actually have had more than one component. If it was a time of the year when the Jordan was near its peak, a stick thrown in the water would immediately have been swept downstream. So we're not given all the details around the miracle that might tell us that there are actually more suspensions of natural laws than just the laws that pertain to the buoyancy of iron and water, but we are given enough to know that what Elisha was doing was seeing that one of his followers was in trouble, was experiencing a personal tragedy of sorts, And so Elisha was willing to step in and perform a miracle to help him out.
0: And this story reveals that Elisha had a kind heart and a genuine concern for the people he was ministering to. But no matter what other details might reveal, recovering a lost axe head from a river is never going to match the importance of parting an entire sea to save a nation of over two million people from destruction,
2: will it? No, it won't. And it's here that you start to be able to draw some really significant lessons from God's performance of various miracles. But before we get to the analysis, let's look at the details of the parting of the Red Sea. The Bible says that the Lord parted the Red Sea using a strong wind from the east. Now, some people might say that a strong wind can part water, so that doesn't mean that God had to suspend any natural laws in this case.
0: True enough, but people who said that would be missing the point that While wind may part water, it rarely blows at a steady rate for hours on end. I mean, no matter how well organized the Hebrews were, it would take hours for two million men, women, and children to cross from one side of even a large lake to the other. And the Hebrews had not only to get themselves across, they had to carry all their possessions, and they had flocks of sheep, goats, and cattle that they had to move as well so the wind would have had to hold steady for hours, blow primarily on the water, not knock over the people and the animals, and create a large enough path through the water so the people could navigate an uneven sea bottom safely. And of course, do it all exactly at the right time when the Lord used an alternating pillar of cloud and fire to block the Egyptian army. I'm not sure I could catalog all of the natural laws the Lord manipulated while affecting the Red Sea crossing, but it has to be more than a few.
2: Yes. So the Hebrew nation crossing the Red Sea was clearly a miraculous event, and even by generous standards, considerably more important of an event to redemptive history than Elisha rescuing a lost axe head. And I think that the comparison of these three incidents tells us a few things that are really important
0: such as
2: well first our god is the god of both the big and the small now god is infinite so there's literally no limit to what or how he can provide for his people and he pays attention to everything in our lives whether we think it's a big thing or a small thing next a lesson that we learn is that god is sovereign over the affairs not only of individual people and their circumstances He is also sovereign over the affairs of nations, armies, and empires.
0: Well, that's a great lesson for us today. Our nation has endured its fair share of trials lately, so it's a comfort to be reminded that God is still in control of it all. What else do we learn from these three stories?
2: Well, one of the other things we learn is that God doesn't need a miracle. He doesn't need to suspend the operation of His natural law to help His people. God granted David the victory over Goliath, and that led to the defeat of the entire Philistine army, but God didn't need a miracle to do that. Now let's remember that David was just a teenage Hebrew boy when all that happened, and as a teenage boy, he had tended sheep for years, and he had been using his sling for years to guard the sheep. David had probably slung thousands of rocks through the years, either to scare away wolves or other threats, or just to practice his aim. I mean, he was a teenage boy. God can and does expect us to get good at whatever He has called us to do. And God can and does use our natural abilities in His service. And sometimes God uses those abilities and the preparation that He's given to us doing seemingly insignificant things, sometimes God uses that preparation to accomplish things that are considerably beyond anything that we can conceive. You know, when David was toting his bread and cheese down to his brothers in the Valley of Elah, he probably never dreamed as he was carrying the bread and the cheese that God was going to use him to produce the victory for the entire Hebrew army.
0: That's another great lesson. We may think that what we have been doing is somehow humble or even unimportant, but God can use anyone's skills or ability to build his kingdom, and frankly, to save people and nations. Anything else?
2: Well, I think one other lesson we really need to think about is that God sometimes lets things look pretty bleak before He steps in. And that's why we have to always keep our trust focused on Him. In each of these three episodes that we looked at today, things were not looking good for the people of God. But that didn't mean that God wasn't still in control and that He intended good for His people. Now, at my age, I know that things don't always turn out the way I hope. Death and disease are real. Job losses are real. Financial struggles are real. Without a doubt, there are times in this life when we know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, we live in a fallen creation. But for Christians, our hope lies not so much for the delivery in this world, which God will often bring, but our hope lies in the certainty of our glorification in the next world. Now, I know that a lot of people would just dismiss this observation as being optimistic foolishness, but to me, this is just another assurance. When people dismiss this observation of our hope and glorification in the next world, when people dismiss that as optimistic foolishness, to me, that's just another assurance that the Bible accurately reflects the nature of this creation. And just as certainly as I recognize the reality of pain, I also recognize the reality that many, many times in my life, I have seen God's remarkable delivery that He provides for His people. But the one thing that I want to emphasize above all is that ultimately, anyone who places their hope in Jesus first and foremost, anyone who does that, will never be disappointed.
0: And that's such an important observation and a great way to close today. It reminds me of Psalm 37:25, "The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. Once I was young, and now I am old, yet I have never seen the godly abandoned." Unquote. As we always do, we want to close with a prayer. Since this is about the time that school is starting, let's listen to a prayer for children starting another school year.
3: A prayer for a child starting school. Blessed Father, your word tells us that children are a gift from you. We thank you that you have blessed our family with our children, and we glorify you that you are their real father. Your love for them exceeds any earthly love, and this encourages us that we may come to you in prayer for all their needs. Soon we have a child who will be starting school. We pray that you would meet our many needs at this time. We pray first that you will enable us to send them to a school that will be safe, and that genuinely treasures the opportunity to be involved with your precious children. Help us to find a balance that is so important to helping them grow in trust, while also learning to cope with the world and its temptations. Awaken in them, and reawaken in us the joy of learning. When the disciples tried to prevent the children from coming to Christ, Christ rebuked them and forever established that he cares greatly for little children. He reminded the disciples that the little ones have angels in heaven who stand before the Father. We take comfort that Christ himself undertakes to provide for children. Therefore, we pray in Jesus' name in the confident expectation of mercy and provision. Amen.
0: Next time, on Anchored by Truth, we're going to continue our discussion about biblical miracles and how God uses the accounts of them in the Bible to further His grand plan of redemption. We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics, so if they've missed any episodes, all of these are available on your favorite podcast app. Just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where We're We're not famous, but but our our boss is. is.